when you're reading the Bible, do you ever stop and just say to yourself, man, this, this stuff is just plain bizarre? Uh, do, do, you, uh, do you ever find yourself uh, saying that to yourself when you're, when you're reading God's Word? Maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't consider yourself a, a follower of Jesus. Uh, maybe you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. Uh, and perhaps, you know, this is a great stumbling block for you. Um, maybe you've met Christians and, and they've told you about Jesus and perhaps they've even brought you here today and you're thinking to yourself, you know, this Jesus, he sounds wonderful, but, but the Old Testament, that is just, it's full of bizarre and really brutal stuff. Do, do I have to accept the Old Testament in order to accept Jesus? If you have ever felt this way, or, or if you're feeling this way now, then let me just share with you my hope for this sermon. This morning, we intend to study Deuteronomy chapter 21. And there are some apparently bizarre things in the text. And my hope and goal is to move us from perceiving these laws and commands given to the ancient people of God as bizarre. I want to move us from viewing them as bizarre to beholding the beauty of God's beloved Son in and through them. We're going to look at texts about breaking a cow's neck, marrying a female captive of war, passing on an inheritance in a, a marriage situation that involves polygamy. Uh, we're going to look at stoning a rebellious son and a man cursed by God hung on a tree. We're going to look at these texts, and as we do, I want to persuade you, or try to persuade you, that they reveal something to us about God, something to us about ourselves, and especially something about Jesus. I want us to come to see how these apparently bizarre laws communicate to us the beauty of how Jesus has loved sinners like us. So if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 163. And while you're turning there, let's just remember what we're setting in this book called Deuteronomy. This book called Deuteronomy. As we study Deuteronomy 21, we must remember that these verses, this chapter, is part of Moses' final instructions to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land of Canaan. These are, are Moses' last words, and they're about how the people of Israel are to live in the land uh, once they get there. And really, that's what binds these seemingly bizarre and disconnected laws together, these laws and statutes of command. You, you'll notice in our passage, when we, when we read through it, that there's a reference to life in the land at the beginning, and there's a reference to life in the land right there at the end. God wants Israel to live totally holy lives, which means they live lives that reflect His total holiness as they live in this land. This is what God wants from His people, the ancient people of God, the people of Israel. Now, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, these laws do not apply to us in a, a direct one-to-one -one fashion. Uh, among other things, um, we do not live under a theocracy. We do not, as Christians, go out and make war against another nation. Uh, we do not offer sacrifices of atonement. There's no altar here this morning. We haven't brought a, a lamb out here for that activity, right? Um, 
these laws do not apply to us in a one-to-one fashion. At the same time, uh, that does not mean that these laws are irrelevant to us as believers in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That is, to bring them to their end and goal. You see, Jesus is the end and goal of these laws in Deuteronomy. They teach us about our sinfulness and salvation in Him. And that is what I hope we all come to understand today as we examine Deuteronomy 21. As we we take a look at each of the five sections of Deuteronomy 21, I hope that you'll come to see how these laws reveal God's holiness, our guilt, and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin first by considering Deuteronomy 21 verses 1 to 9. In these verses, we learn that Jesus is the substitute. So that's the heading for this point. Jesus is the substitute. It's our first point. Please follow along now as I read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out. And they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when, the Lord, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So these, these verses, they display something of a connection with what we considered last week as we studied Deuteronomy chapter 19. There we learned that the Lord required justice for the loss of human life because men and women are made in His image and are therefore worthy of protection and honor. But what would happen if a man was murdered and, and guilt, the, the murderer couldn't be found, guilt couldn't be established? Well, what we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, is what would happen. The, the leaders of, of God's people would come and determine the city closest to where uh, the man's body was found, and that city would essentially bear corporate responsibility for the loss of this man's life. Uh, the city would be uh, accounted as bearing the guilt for his death. Now, now perhaps that unsettles you, uh, but frankly... That's just what the text communicates in verse 9. So you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from your midst. The man who died, he did not deserve to die. And and since it could not be determined who put him to death, the nearest city would be responsible for his death. 
It should not be unsettling, especially since God provides a remedy for this situation. This remedy is, is multi-layered, thus addressing the, the multi-layered problem uh, that the people of the city faced. A heifer, which is to say a young cow, would be put to death. The command that the heifer was one which was never to be worked um, somewhat expresses kind of the, the innocence of this animal. It, it doesn't deserve to die, just like the man who was killed. Not only did this heifer likely have a connection to the man who died in, in expressing kind of his, his innocence, but it also clearly had a connection to the people. This animal would stand in as a substitute for the people of the city. The, the heifer would bear the punishment that this sin of murder deserved, which was death. And the manner in which the heifer is put to death is, is sobering. Its neck is broken. And, and we can only speculate this was probably meant to visibly illustrate the, the kind of death that the man who died in the open country had experienced. All of this may seem bizarre to us, but consider, I mean, just consider how seriously God took the loss of a single human life. I mean, friends, the, the loss of innocent human life has probably happened in our community this past week. And we probably haven't even been made aware of it. But everyone in this city was aware of the loss of human life. Loss of human life is kind of covered over in our world today. Friends, have we, have we become numb to the death of the innocent? If so, uh, perhaps it is a symptom of our being at home in this fallen world. With that kind of question in mind, consider how the ceremony described here concludes. The ceremony concludes with the representatives of the people, the priests testifying both, or declaring, both in word and in deed, that the people of the city are innocent. That's why they both visibly wash their hands and verbally declare their innocence. Not only that, but they petition God not to hold the people guilty. They make this petition asking God that He would accept the atonement that they have offered in this ceremony. You see that right there in verse 8, right? It's here, I think, that we should stop and ask, well, what, what is atonement? You know, atonement is a concept that's spoken of often in the Bible, and it's used regularly when Christians talk about Jesus and what He has done. Uh, atonement involves sin, sinners, substitution, sacrifice, and satisfaction. See, atonement is needed because sin has been committed. Sin is either a transgression of God's law, or a failure to conform to God's law. And sin is not something that happens disconnected from humans. No, humans sin. All humans sin. And that is why atonement not only involves sin, but it also involves sinners. Atonement not only involves sin and sinners, but it also involves a substitution for sinners. The truth is that sinners cannot make up for their sin. We are guilty. We've been stained by sin. We need a substitute to stand in our place. More precisely, we need a sinless substitute. And that is why, this is why, atonement also involves a sacrifice that is given by a sinless substitute. In other words, atonement involves the giving up of life and the shedding of blood. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says when he, when he writes in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Finally, atonement involves satisfaction. 
satisfaction. And this is maybe the most surprising thing about atonement. God's just wrath against sin needs to be satisfied. This is why atonement is necessary. God is angry, justly angry, at those who have transgressed His law. This is why atonement is necessary. God's wrath needs to be satisfied against sinners, or they will face and bear God's wrath. So, having articulated the components of atonement, let me just give you my definition for atonement. Atonement is a substitutionary sacrifice made for the purpose of satisfying the wrath of God against sinners and their sin. Let me give it to you again, and you can catch me at the door afterward if you don't get it all down, if you want it. Atonement is a substitutionary sacrifice made for the purpose of satisfying the wrath of God against sinners and their sin. See, this is precisely what happens in the case of the people of Israel and the heifer. And it's exactly what Jesus has done for sinners like you and me. This is why we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, which is just a fancy word to say the substitutionary satisfying sacrifice. See, God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the substitutionary satisfying sacrifice for our sins. That's what Jesus has done. We've considered the truth that Jesus is the substitute for sin. Let's turn now and consider our second point. Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 21, if you read it earlier this week, I should say, uh, I wonder if that was the first thought that came to your mind. Probably not, I'm guessing. It certainly wasn't mine. Nevertheless, I think that we can see in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 to 14, the good news that Jesus has come to conquer God's enemies and win for himself a bride that he will never stop loving. So please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 to 14. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. As we read these verses, we're reminded that we're looking forward to a time when the people of Israel are living in the promised land of Canaan. Uh, These verses also envision a time when the people of Israel go out from that land. They go out from that land to war. In other words, the, the language of verse 10 makes clear that this pertains only to the peoples outside of Canaan. 
if you remember from our, our past studies in the book of Deuteronomy, we've seen that the Lord and, and Moses uh, are, are clear that the nations of Canaan are treated differently than the nations beyond those, beyond Canaan. Um, as we learned last week in Deuteronomy chapter 20, Israel may offer the nations beyond Canaan, they may offer them peace when they go out to make war against them. But they must completely and utterly destroy the people of Canaan. Here, we're looking at a wartime regulation concerning the, the distant nations. And believe it or not, these regulations were meant to protect women from conquered nations. And believe it or not, these regulations are meant to prohibit Israelite warriors from harming women. I recognize that this is a sensitive subject these days. And frankly, that is a good development. Women, all women, deserve to be treated with tender care. And what is often difficult to believe as we approach a passage like this in God's Word, it's difficult to believe that God's laws are wholly just and good. Here's the thing. We must bring what we believe about God into our reading of His Word. We as Christians believe that God is perfectly righteous, perfectly loving, and perfectly good. And we must read God's Word with that in mind. We must read believing that what God commands is right. And if we're made uncomfortable or uncertain by it, then we've got to recognize that the problem is not with the infinite and infinitely holy God, but with the finite an unholy creature. These regulations were meant to protect women from the conquered nations, while at the same time prohibit, prohibiting Israelite warriors from harming those same women. In other words, this regulation was given to protect the vulnerable from the victorious. Can you see that in these verses? Think just for a moment about what war was like in the ancient Near East. It was marked, after conquest, it was marked by rape and pillage. The Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, all the warriors from the nations of the ancient Near Eastern world would have had their way with the women of the nations that they conquered. But it was not to be with the warriors of Israel. It was not to be so with them. The purpose of this legislation is to protect the vulnerable from the victorious. You see... In Israel, and in God's world for that matter, sexual intimacy is only permissible within the confines of marriage. So, if a warrior of Israel wanted to be intimate with a woman from a conquered nation, then he would have to marry her. And if he wanted to do that, then he would have to take her home, allow her to mourn for her family for a full month. And then and only then could they consummate their marriage. It, it even seems that the actions of the woman, including the shaving her head, paring her nails, and mourning for her father and mother, may have some consonance with the idea of leaving and cleaving. The leaving behind her former clothing may even indicate a change in allegiance from the gods of her former nation to the one true God of Israel. It's even possible that these actions were not brought about through coercion, but were willingly pursued. In the end, the man may decide that he would not continue in the marriage with the woman, 
uh, then he, uh, if, if he did that, then he could not keep her as a slave. Rather, he had to set her free. She was to be treated as a person, not as property. And she had real freedom too. As verse 14 communicates, she could go wherever she wanted. Now, we don't have all of the answers we want about this text. But what we do have, we know that this legislation was designed to protect the vulnerable from the abuses of the victorious. The vulnerable were to be honored, not humiliated. However, the particulars of each case was to be worked out in ancient Israel. What is clear is the vulnerable is to be favored over the victorious. There may have been another purpose too. Can you see the, the, the possibility of tender care from an Israelite soldier in expressing his desire for marriage? Promising protection and provision. What would happen, what would happen to a, a beautiful woman, a single woman, after the men of her nation were wiped out and the army of Israel evacuated? Is it possible that another nation could sweep through and inflict even more harm and take advantage of her. Here in this marriage proposal, a man is offering to take responsibility for her, to feed her, to clothe her, and to provide a home for her. Now, it's true that as followers of Jesus, we do not live under these regulations anymore. The, the people of God no longer constitute a nation state. In, in John chapter 13, sorry, John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. So Jesus' redemptive work has transformed how we relate to this law and how this law relates to us. Still, there is application that we should draw out, I think, from this command. For instance, we should be praying that when war does take place in our world, that conquering armies show this kind of restraint and protect the vulnerable rather than taking advantage of them. The truth is, is that sometimes conquering armies in our day act like conquering armies did in the ancient Near Eastern world. We want to pray against that. And as citizens, we want to advocate for the honorable treatment of women and children at all times, including in a time of war. As believers, we should continue to tell the world that women are not property but people made in God's image. Women are therefore to be cherished and honored. That has implications for how a man looks at a woman on the street or on a screen. It has implications for even how a husband looks at his wife. Women are not objects to be used for personal pleasure. A woman is not an object of a man's conquest. Rather, a woman is an image bearer who brings glory to God. And as such, she is to be cherished, nourished, and honored. We should also be deeply comforted by the truth that our conquering King, Jesus, loves us. See, Jesus is a warrior who has conquered Satan to free us from his deceptive and destructive grasp. And this text reminds us that our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, will never leave or forsake his bride. What is also true is that this text reminds us that Jesus loves an unlovely people. See, in shaving their heads and paring their nails and exchanging their garments and entering into a time of mourning, these women removed a kind of beauty and glory from themselves. 
they removed from themselves those things which initially drew the Israelite warriors' attention to them. Our circumstance is much worse. For all of our garments in the sight of God are as filthy rags. And Jesus came to unlove to love an unlovely people. He came to wash and cleanse and beautify His bride. This is what God's Word teaches us. So keep one finger here in Deuteronomy 21 and turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 to 32. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 979. I believe it's at the, the top of page 979. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 In this passage, Paul is enumerating the the duties of husbands to their wives and wives to their husbands. He is enumerating their duties in light of Jesus' love for the church and the church's love for Jesus. Uh, Please follow along as I read uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verses 25 to 32. And remember what we've been thinking about in Deuteronomy 21. Husbands, love your wives as... Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, Deuteronomy 21, it it pointed out that Israelite warriors were to sacrifice their desires for the sake of their new brides. Paul here is telling us that Jesus offered a great sacrifice for his bride, the church. Yes, Jesus gave himself entirely to her, and entirely for her. Jesus did it for the sake of love. And as the church, as Jesus' bride, are we unwilling to give our love to Him? No. Our hearts cannot but return what we have received from Him. We do love Him. We love Him because He first loved us. We love Him because we know the truth about ourselves. We were unlovely, unprotected, unclean, unholy, and unable to save ourselves. And through His love, we have been delivered from captivity and welcomed into His home. Jesus is our great warrior who has conquered sin and death. And He has promised to love us with an undying love because He will never die again. Jesus is the substitute. And Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is also the firstborn son. This is what we learn next in Deuteronomy 21. So turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21. That's page 163 
of the Bibles provided. We're going to look at verses 15 to 17 now. Here we meet a scenario filled with strife. It is a case like previous cases that is less than ideal. And I think that we should be impressed by the fact that our God knows that we live in a sinful and fallen world and so He regulates our sin and selfishness from running roughshod, running roughshod over others. How we need such restraint in our world today. Please follow along as I read uh, verses 15 to 17 now. Here, Jesus, we see He's the firstborn Son. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn, in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Here we meet a case of polygamy. A man has two wives and children from both of those wives. And it's important to understand the Bible never, never encourages polygamy. No, polygamy is always presented as propagating strife between persons and families. You only need to go back to Genesis and read the, really the middle chapters of that book to see how destructive polygamy is. When we encounter polygamy in the scriptures, it's a practice that's regulated. It's regulated in part because sin seems to rear its head so frequently in cases of polygamy. Moreover, as we, as we read about polygamous relationships in the Bible, it is clear that the authors are intending to communicate that it is neither God's design nor desire for His people, for any people. Whenever we come across polygamy in the scriptures, it is a harsh, not a harmonious tone that we hear in the author's voice. In other words, the, the authors of scripture give us God's divine perspective on polygamy through their tone, how they describe it, and how it is attended with destruction and devastation. The Christian church has consistently condemned the practice of polygamy through the years. And I pray that we will continue to do so. And we will continue to need to do so. Because polygamy is being lauded even in our world. We need to continue to condemn the practice of polygamy as contrary to God's desire and design. And we need to continue to uphold God's design of marriage as articulated in the scriptures. And what is that design? What is marriage? Well, as our church's statement of faith makes plain, marriage is a single, exclusive, covenant union intended to be lifelong, entered into by one man and one woman to which God bears witness. That is what marriage is, as defined by the scriptures. Here in Deuteronomy, we are confronted with a situation in which a man has two wives. Notice the strife. Do you notice that in our text? The man loves one wife, but he does not love the other. He favors the one son, but not the other. He even tries to give the greater inheritance son of the loved woman rather than the unloved woman. God, as we see here through Moses, says, No. No. The man will not be allowed to play favorites 
and He will not withhold what is rightfully due to the firstborn son. We're even told why there in verse 17. For He, that is the, the, the true firstborn son, for He is the firstfruits of His strength. Now what that means is that this firstborn son was clear-cut evidence that the man was able to produce children and therefore to preserve his family name. This man's favoritism and selfishness would not be allowed to prevail. No, the firstborn son would be guaranteed his inheritance. When this law guaranteed the firstborn son's inheritance, do you know what it also guaranteed? This guaranteed the protection and provision of the unloved woman when this man died. In other words, this law protects the unloved wife from being without provision. Do you see how God's laws for His people actually guard against abuse and misuse of authority? Do you see how they are concerned for the vulnerable and the weak? How they seek to curb sin and its consequences? Inheritance is an important biblical concept. So important, in fact, that it is connected to our hope of salvation. So in Psalm 2, God the Father, He speaks to His, sons and he prom- to his Son, Jesus, and He promises that He will deliver His inheritance to Him. So in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, we read, You are My Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of Me, and I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. See, God the Father is a good Father. And He will not deny His Son, Jesus, all that is due to Him. This is part of the reason that Jesus is identified in the New Testament as the firstborn Son in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the spitting image of His Father. We're told, just a few verses later, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and the head of the church. In other words, He has received and is receiving from His Father His inheritance, believers from the nations, as Psalm 2 puts it. Aren't you glad that God the Father is not like the sinful, selfish father of Deuteronomy 21? Aren't you glad that He is pleased to give His Son His inheritance? You should be glad. For you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of His inheritance. And brothers, those of you who are here today and your fathers... Let me encourage you to be mindful, to to be on guard against favoritism. The truth is, is that we are sometimes tend to be more tender toward one child than others. Perhaps we get along with one child um, with greater ease because they're just like us. Or perhaps we don't get along with one child because they are just like us. Whatever the case may be, love your children. Love all of your children with all of your heart. Jesus is not only the substitute, He's also the bridegroom, He's the firstborn son, and He's also the obedient son. Jesus is the obedient son. That's what we turn to think about next in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. Here, I think we're looking at a portion of Scripture that those who read the Bible in unbelief often use to put believers on the defensive. Uh, Sometimes our our atheist or our our unbelieving friends will bring up this challenging passage of Scripture. But I think that if, if they read Moses fairly, then they might begin to develop a different perspective on the passage. Uh, Please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 21. 
Deuteronomy 21, verse 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city gate at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, as I, as I indicated just before reading the passage, uh, sometimes friends who have objections to the Bible are, are tempted to gravitate to a passage like this and challenge believers. Brothers and sisters, I, I do not think that we should be made nervous by such a challenge. Instead, we should welcome that conversation. Our friends are inviting us to open up the Bible and to talk about it with them. Uh, if, if that offer is rebuffed, then perhaps it's clear that there was never really a sincere desire to engage in discussing the Scriptures and what they say. You know, the, the, the most common objection, I think, uh, raised by these verses is that Israel is being commanded to put children to death. While this language does speak of putting a rebellious son to death, we're, we're not really looking at a child. Uh, he was a glutton and a drunkard, as verse 20 says. Uh, th this was clearly a son who, in at some sense, had grown into maturity and manhood. And what is more, he's clearly a danger to the covenant community. That's why Israel is to purge the evil from their midst. Verse 21. This is precisely the kind of man who would do something that would bring blood guilt upon the community through his sinful indulgence and reckless living. He is precisely the kind of man who would lead others astray. And we should not think that this happened often in Israel. Uh, we have no known cases, actually, of this taking place in Israel's history. At least I don't... I can't recall any in the scriptures. And the truth is, we have some pretty wretched sons in Israel's history. Uh, some of them were sons of prophets and priests. Some of them were even kings. Any parent in Israel would have been slow to bring their son before the leaders. Any parent in Israel would have been sober by having to do so. And should Israel have to face a case like this, we can be sure that it was a sad day. I would not be surprised to find a father or a mother shaken by this text. And maybe we should be at some level. As I read and discussed this passage with my, my kids earlier in the week, uh, I, I, want to, uh, and I, I, I want to point out to you what I pointed out to them. So parents and children, let me encourage you to listen especially closely for the next few minutes. From verse 18, we learn that the parents of this stubborn and rebellious son were faithful. They were faithful to call him to obedience. They were faithful to discipline him. Moms and dads, we may be faithful, but our children may be faithless. Let us pray against that with all of our might. We must pray that the Lord would give them faith. From verse 18, we learn that these parents were faithful, but we also learn that this stubborn son would not listen. Here, here's the responsibility given to fathers and mothers. 
Teach, call for obedience, and discipline your children. Moms and dads, do not grow weary of doing good. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. And be patient with them all. Tell them about Jesus, the love of the Father, and the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you have not been teaching and training your children, if you have not been teaching, calling for obedience, or disciplining your children, then repent and give yourself. Begin to give yourself to the work of teaching and calling for obedience and disciplining your children. The greatest challenging challenge to parenting, I think the greatest challenge to parenting is selfishness. Parenting is good, glorious, heart-wrenching work. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we just don't want to do it. We don't want to do it because we're lazy or because we're tired or weary or because we're just selfish. We want ease. We live in a culture of comfort and we, we just want ease. But, but brothers and sisters, this is your high calling. Those of you who are parents, this is your high calling to spend yourself serving your kids and showing them Christ so that they might love Him and love others, thus becoming productive members of society. And here, here is the responsibility given to children. Children, youth, young adults. Are you ready? Here is your responsibility. Obey your father and your mother. Hear their teaching. Heed, which is just another word for, for obey. Heed their instruction. Receive their discipline. As hard as it is to believe, it is all for your good. Children, youth, young adults, one of the most important words, one of the most important words that your parents can say to you is this. No. That's one of the most important words that your parents can say to you. No. And I'm probably guessing uh, that you don't like that. Uh, that word says that you cannot do what you want to do. Um, that word is restrictive. It is. It's supposed to be. Your parents are trying to teach you to restrain yourself because you know what this son in Deuteronomy 21 does not have? He does not have self-restraint. He does not have self-control. He is a glutton and a drunkard. He lives in excess. He indulges his passions. He says yes to whatever he feels. And it leads to his death. The wages of sin is death. If he will not listen to his parents, the ones God sent in authority over him who love him most and who are most patient with him. Children, do you recognize that? Your parents are the ones in this world who love you the most, who are going to be most patient with you. If he does not listen to them, who will he listen to? He will not listen to the religious or civil authorities. Children, youth and young adults, this, this is what I told my children earlier in the week and I'm going to tell it to you now. Right now, your parents are responsible for your upbringing. They are responsible to help hold your sinfulness in check. 
And yet there will come a day when you step out from under their protection and responsibility and you will be open and accountable and responsible to society. There is coming a day when you can't hide behind the protection of your mom and dad. Your parents are trying to train you now for that day. So I want you to understand this. Your parents, they are a gracious gift from God to you today for your flourishing tomorrow. Your parents are a gracious gift of God to you today for your life in this world tomorrow. Moms and dads, be that gracious gift. Be that gracious gift to them. Sons and daughters, receive that gracious gift. Now, here's what we need to know in all of this. We are going to fail as parents. And we are going to fail as obedient children. Boys and girls, I'm so sorry about this. But there are going to be times that mom and dad need to repent, confess sin, and seek your forgiveness. And mom and dad, if you have never done that, you probably need to start doing that. We all sin against our children, sadly. And we need to confess that to them, show them what confession of sin looks like, what repentance looks like, and seek their forgiveness. Boys and girls, your moms and dads are going to sin against you. And they're going to seek your forgiveness. We are not perfect. No one is perfect. In fact, we are all disobedient children in the sight of God. But the good news of the Bible is this, is that Jesus has been obedient where we have not been. I don't know if you know this, but apparently Jesus was accused of the charges we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 20. Yes, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, and in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, Jesus reports to us that people in His day, probably the Jewish religious authorities, that people in His day had accused Him of being a glutton and a drunkard. They probably accused Jesus of this because they wanted to see Him dead. That's what happens to this rebellious son. But that charge of being a glutton and a drunkard couldn't be further from the truth about Jesus. Jesus was never the rebellious son. He was never stubborn to his father. No, he only and always did what his father commanded. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said that it was his food. It was his food to do his father's will. It gave him life. It was his life and joy to obey God the Father. And in obedience to God the Father, Jesus even took the cup of the Father's wrath and he drank it down to the dregs in His death on the cross. Far from being faithless, He was faithful to the last. And our hope is not in our faithfulness as parents. It's in Jesus' faithfulness. And our hope is not in obedience as children, but it's in Jesus' obedience. Yes, Jesus bore the punishment that our stubborn sinfulness deserved. And that is what we need to turn to think about in our final point. Jesus bore the curse. Jesus bore the curse. And as we think about this, please follow along as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, 
His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You see, in the verses preceding these, we read about a crime that was punishable by death. In these verses, we learn about what happened after that man was put to death. His body was hung on a tree. In other words, this is what the covenant community did after that man was put to death for his crimes, likely by stoning. And the hanging in view here is, is not done with a rope, but rather uh, the man's body was, in all likelihood, impaled upon the tree. The purpose of this was both vertical, with respect to our relationship with God, and horizontal. Vertically speaking, this publicly displayed or placarded, as we read earlier in Paul's letter to the Galatians, this publicly displayed God's divine disposition for the man and the crime that he committed. He was cursed by God. Horizontally speaking, this public display served as a deterrence for Israelites who were thinking about following in his way. This curse displayed was necessarily brief, for his body was not to remain on the tree all night, as verse 23 makes plain. Now, for, for those of us who are thinking forward to the New Testament, I hope you are, perhaps we're already remembering that Jesus was impaled and hung upon a tree. And that his body was not allowed to remain there all night, but instead put in a tomb or buried before nightfall. And in that way, this law was observed. Which is astounding to think that Jesus even kept the law in his death. He even rested on the seventh day. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul, as we read earlier in the service, he unpacks the theological significance of this for us and for our salvation. And I want us to go there. Go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 3. That's page 973 in the Bibles provided. We're going to read verse 13. Just meditate briefly on verse 13 of Galatians chapter 3. But as we prepare to read this verse, we should remember what Paul has just said. Paul has just made plain that apart from Jesus Christ, all, all without exception, are under God's curse. This is what sin does. It brings us under God's curse for the wages, which is to say, that is what is justly due to sin, is death. That's what our sin deserves to be paid. We have all worked in sin. And we all deserve to get paid. Now let's read Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. There is endless hope here. Jesus was cursed so that we might be blessed. When we read those first two words in verse 13, Christ redeemed, we should understand in them that Jesus frees, He delivers us from the curse of God's law. Jesus Christ has delivered His people from enduring God's just punishment of their sins. 
Okay, so, so Christ delivered his people from the curse of the law, but how has he done it? Look again at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, by becoming a curse for us. You see, he was paid what we deserve to be paid. The law demands that sin be punished and put to death. And God is a just God, and he will not let sin go unpunished. Every sin, as we thought about, even in the death of the heifer, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 9, every sin without exception must be punished, like the heifer who was offered as a substitute for the blood guilt of the people. As that heifer made atonement. So Jesus made atonement. He made a substitutionary sacrifice for the purpose of satisfying God's wrath towards us. And what Paul is describing here is the truth that Jesus took the punishment. He took the penalty. He took the payment. He took the curse of our sin upon himself. He took the curse for all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. And Paul proves that Jesus was cursed by God for sinners by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Paul sees Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 as pointing forward to what would be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that tree, the cross. Jesus was cursed by God. And it's interesting, if you read through Paul's letters, it's interesting how Paul almost always claims a personal stake in Christ's death when he's talking about it. Christ's death is, is very personal to Paul. He places, I don't know if you notice this, he places himself in the group of those for whom Christ died. He became a curse for us. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Paul actually did the same thing earlier in his letter, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where he declared that Christ loved me and gave himself for me. How about you? Do you take a personal stake and claim in Jesus' death? When you read about Jesus' death, do you say to yourself, He did that for me? When you read about Jesus' death, you say, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Do you, do you confess when you read about Jesus' death, guilty, vile, and helpless, we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Brothers and sisters, when we read of Jesus' death, let's not stand at a distance from it, but let's remember that it was for us and for our salvation. And dear friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not relying upon Jesus alone for your salvation, then I want to invite you this very morning to come out from under God's curse. Friend, we have all been made in God's image. He is the author of our lives. And as the author of our lives, He has authority over them. And He, he has the authority to call us to live as He wants us to live, to live under His rule. But we, like the first man and the first woman He made, we have all rebelled against His rule. We have said, no, 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 you're not going to make the laws for my life. I'm going to make the laws for my life. And I'm going to live how I want to live. 
And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's rebelling against God's rule. Do you realize that we have all rebelled against the one who has given us life and breath, who is even this very moment sustaining your life? If you're living, it's because he keeps you breathing. We have all broken the laws of the God of life, but in love. God sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was truly God and truly man. And he lived the life that we ought to have lived, but haven't. Jesus perfectly kept God's law in every way. And because he was sinless, he did not break God's law. He was not under the law's curse. And yet, he went under the law's curse for us. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in him. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The clean for the unclean. The holy for the unholy. And he did it so that he might bring us to God. Jesus died to deliver sinners out from under the curse of the law. Out from under God's wrath. And three days later, he came out from under death. On behalf of repenting sinners, Jesus was raised from the dead to show them that God accepted His atonement, His substitutionary sacrifice, that it satisfied God's wrath. And He was raised to prove to us that when He offers us eternal life, He can make good on His offer because He will never die again. So we can trust Him with our lives. So friend, I want to invite you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in the only one who has conquered sin and death, who has undergone the, the curse of God's law so that sinners might be set free. I pray uh, that, that you would bear this in mind throughout this day. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would bear this in mind every day. We would bear this in mind as we conclude. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, the final encouragement I want to draw from Deuteronomy 21 is this. Whenever you come across an apparently bizarre passage, don't rush and skip over it. There is likely beauty in that passage. In some way, every passage, even perhaps the especially bizarre passages, point us in astounding ways to behold the saving work of Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 21 has taught us that Jesus is our sinless substitute, that He's our bridegroom who will never leave us, forsake us. That He's the firstborn Son whom we are His inheritance. That He's the faithful Son who's been faithful where we have been faithless. And Deuteronomy 21 has taught us that Jesus bore our curse so that we might receive His blessing. That is not bizarre. That is wondrously beautiful. Let's pray together.